This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, child abuse, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the middle of the night, Denise Messier gathered her three daughters in her living room in Manchester, New Hampshire. Unzipping a massive suitcase, she told them they were going on a road trip back to Alaska. Denise tried to make it like a game. They needed to leave as fast as possible, so they'd have to pack quickly. She told her children to bring only the most important items with them. Everything else would have to be left behind. As her daughter scampered off to their rooms, Denise began shoving things into her suitcase, not even bothering to fold the clothing. Every few seconds, she looked nervously from her closet back to the window near her front door. Her ex-husband, Danny Paquette, had a habit of showing up uninvited. If he caught them trying to make a quick escape, Denise didn't want to know what he might do. With her own suitcase stuffed, Denise hurried to check her daughter's bags. Her younger girls, Caroline and Audrey, had only packed their favorite stuffed animals, 12-year-old Melanie, at least, had grabbed socks and underwear. It would have to be good enough. After a final sweep of the apartment, Denise strapped the girls into her car, flipped on the headlights, and started the ignition. The drive to Alaska would take nearly six days, a small sacrifice, Denise thought, to keep her daughter safe from Danny Paquette. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? 
If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we'll explore 15-year-old Melanie Paquette's abusive relationship with her adoptive father, Danny and her subsequent friendship with 17-year-old Eric Windhurst. We'll see how Eric made a decision on Melanie's behalf that would shake a small New Hampshire town for decades. Next week, we'll discuss the 20-year-long investigation into the shocking crime and discover how investigators finally unraveled the truth. Melanie Paquette's young life was shaped for the worse by her relationship with her adoptive father, Danny. The abuse that she suffered likely had its roots in Danny's upbringing on a dairy farm in Manchester, New Hampshire. During Danny's childhood, his parents had trouble making ends meet. In addition to working on the farm, his father, Arthur, picked up a job at a city construction site. His mother, Rena, moonlighted at a local laundromat. It was because of her second job that Rena Paquette ended up dragged into a criminal investigation. In 1964, a 14-year-old Manchester girl named Pamela disappeared. After the girl had been missing for weeks, one of Rena's co-workers confessed that her son, Edward Coolidge, had killed Pamela in the Paquette family pigsty. The revelation shocked Rena, who suddenly became afraid in her own house. Arthur suggested they keep the secret to themselves for their own safety. But Rena couldn't bear the thought of Edward getting away with his crime. She called the Manchester Police Department and told them everything she knew. Soon afterward, on a chilly winter morning in 1964, 15-year-old Danny's life was shattered. Though the sun had hardly risen that day, Rena Paquette had already cooked six breakfasts and packed six lunches for her children. She shuffled five of them off to school, letting her sixth child, Danny, sleep in. He was out of school for a dentist appointment that morning, so Rena left him in bed and went out to the family's pigsty to check on the animals. She shivered as she made the half-mile walk to the sty. Ever since her co-worker had told her about the murder there, she couldn't help but feel anxious going inside. But the chores needed to be done. So Rena filled a bucket with slop and bent over to pour it in the trough. As she did, the hungry pigs greeted her with a chorus of squeals and oinks. The animals were so loud that Rena couldn't hear the sound of a man approaching her from behind. Back at the house, Danny woke up late for his dentist appointment. He jolted upright in his bed and hurried to get dressed. As he ran down the stairs, he called out for his mother. She always woke him up. He wondered where she could be. When no one answered his calls, Danny checked every corner of the house for his mom. She was nowhere to be found. He then picked up the phone and called his aunt, 
asking with a trembling voice if she knew where his mother was. He was so distraught that his aunt promised to send his uncle Charlie over to see what was going on. Danny chewed on his fingernails while he waited for his uncle to arrive. He tried to convince himself everything was fine. His mother had probably run to the supermarket to grab something, or maybe gone to visit their father at work. There was nothing to worry about. But he just couldn't believe she had forgotten his dentist appointment. She was always there for him. For her to just disappear without even leaving a note, something had to be wrong. When Charlie pulled up outside, Danny burst out of the front door and ran to him. Charlie walked with his nephew to the family's barn where they checked each stall for Rena. There was no sign of Rena there either, but from one of the bar windows, Danny could see the family's pigsty was engulfed in flames. His eyes went wide as he watched a dark column of smoke reaching towards the sky. Charlie sprinted towards the sty, his nephew struggling to keep up. When Charlie flung open the doors, he found Rena Paquette's charred body lying among the ashes. Manchester officials ruled Rena Paquette's death a suicide, but Danny knew better. He and the rest of the Paquette family believed that Edward Coolidge had killed her for revenge. Rena had lost her life because she told the police what she knew about Pamela's murder. Losing his mother at such a young age had a profound impact on Danny Paquette. Before I continue with Danny's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A 1984 book by the U.S. Institute of Medicine details the psychopathological effects children experience after the death of a parent. Compiling results from numerous studies, researchers found that the long-term impacts of the loss of a parent are largely dependent on the child's developmental stage at the time of loss. Because Danny was 15 years old, he was at a psychological stage in which he understood the finality of death, but did not necessarily have the emotional tools or life experience to deal with his loss effectively. Furthermore, the book found that the death of a parent may precipitate or contribute to the development of a variety of psychiatric disorders and render a person emotionally vulnerable for life. The fact that Danny's mother met a violent end only compounded his psychological pain. Dr. Carl P. Malmquist studied children's post-traumatic reactions to finding one or both parents violently killed. This is, of course, a horrific situation for any child to go through. And Dr. Malmquist found that children who experienced this kind of trauma all shared one identical symptom, nightmares. Other psychological symptoms varied, but depression, anxiety, desensitization to violence, and extreme anger were all common. Finding his mother's body and believing she was murdered likely primed Danny for the psychological issues he would struggle with his entire life. Everyone who knew young Danny agreed that after his mother's death, he was never the same. Losing his mother left Danny angry and hopeless. She had been his rock, a constant caring presence. Then she was stolen from him and police stomped on her memory by ruling her murder a suicide. Confused and needy, 
Danny searched desperately for someone to lean on after his mother's passing. In 1965, he found a sympathetic ear in Denise Messier, a strawberry blonde girl who worked at the Elm Street Hotel with Danny during the summer. The quiet hotel allowed their teenage romance to flourish. They met often in dark hallways and empty rooms, stealing kisses and sometimes more. It felt like a fling at first, but then Denise discovered she was pregnant. The 15-year-old certainly wasn't ready to have a child, but in conservative New Hampshire, she had a few options. Shortly after she told Danny she was pregnant, Denise disappeared. Rumors spread that she had been sent to a farm for unwed mothers where she gave birth to a boy. Yet when she came back home, there was no baby. Denise's parents forbade her from ever seeing Danny Paquette again, and he never learned what happened to his son. Over the next eight years, Danny and Denise lived separate lives. Both were married, Danny to a woman named Stephanie, Denise to a man named Tom. Each marriage lasted just two years and ended in a sticky divorce. In 1973, Denise bumped into Danny again. The sparks Denise had felt in 1965 were still there, electric as ever. Now in her mid-twenties, she confided in Danny that she had given up their son for adoption eight years prior. He vowed that they would find their child and finally start the family they were always meant to have. By the end of 1974, Denise Messier and Danny Paquette were married. For the first few years, the couple was happy. They were never able to track down their son, but they did have two daughters of their own, Caroline and Audrey. Although Danny was technically her stepfather, he legally adopted Denise's daughter from her first marriage, Melanie, so she and her sisters could all have the same last name. The couple purchased a large stretch of land in Hooksett, New Hampshire, where Danny started his own welding business. It seemed that the couple was living the American dream. It didn't take long, however, for the dream to become a nightmare. Danny's temper grew shorter as the years passed, and eventually his latent violence was impossible to ignore. He was quick to turn any small disagreement into a screaming match, even going so far as to physically abuse Denise in front of their children. But even worse, unbeknownst to Denise, Danny targeted Melanie as well. It's not known exactly when the abuse began, but sometime before Melanie was nine years old, Danny allegedly began to sneak into her bedroom and force her to do things she didn't understand. Over time, his behavior escalated into full-blown sexual abuse. To keep Melanie quiet, Danny would play a, quote, game after abusing her. He held one of his mini guns to the child's head and slowly pulled the trigger while she bawled. Melanie was never sure whether the gun was loaded until she heard the empty barrel click. After tormenting her, Danny would remind his adopted daughter not to tell anybody about the things he did. He said it was their special secret, but he wouldn't be able to keep his sick abuse under wraps forever. When we return, we'll see how Melanie escaped Danny. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1980, the marriage between 30-year-old Denise Messier and 31-year-old Danny Paquette was in shambles. In March of that year, Denise decided she wanted a divorce. She moved her three daughters out of the Paquette country home and into an apartment in the city. The thought of his childhood sweetheart leaving him sent Danny into a spiral of panic and rage. It reminded him of the loss of his mother, and he refused to let another woman leave him. He called Denise at her job every day, leaving crazed voicemails begging her to stay and threatening her if she didn't. He repeatedly went to Denise's workplace in person as well, crying and shrieking uncontrollably. These emotional manipulation tactics are fairly prevalent among abusers, begging one's partner to stay and promising to be better after a violent altercation is common. Often, both partners will get caught in a cycle of violence in which abuse precedes a honeymoon phase of domestic peace that eventually spirals into violence again. Threats of violence are used to scare one's partner into submission, while crying and attempting to garner sympathy are forms of gaslighting. When Danny's attempts at emotional manipulation didn't work, he always resorted to physical violence. One Saturday, Danny stormed into Denise's apartment and demanded that she give him his children back. He threw Denise onto the couch, pressed his hand over her nose and mouth, and screamed in her face. Their little girls, 10-year-old Melanie, 2-year-old Caroline, and 10-month-old Audrey, looked on from the corner of the room. Despite Danny's manipulations, Denise did eventually divorce him. Shortly afterwards, he was committed to the New Hampshire State Mental Hospital, where he stayed throughout 1981. Caseworkers tried to help treat what they called his violent streak, which likely originated from the unresolved trauma of his mother's death. But even after a year in the hospital, doctors saw no improvement. In fact, one caseworker admitted to Denise that his condition seemed to be getting worse. Because staying in the state hospital was clearly not doing him any good, Danny was released in 1982. Against her better judgment, Denise agreed to allow him to have visitations with their three girls at his home in Hooksit. Truthfully, she needed a break. The quiet that came over her Manchester apartment while the girls were at their father's house was a welcome respite, but it didn't last for long. After being dropped off at Danny's house, 11-year-old Melanie frequently called her mother, crying and begging to come home. At first, Denise reassured her daughter that everything would be okay. She told Melanie that she knew it was strange to have her father back around, but that he was changed now. His time in the hospital had made him a better person. As the calls continued to come, however, Denise began to fear that something awful was going on in Hooksit. Her face grew hot and her stomach twisted 
as she considered the worst possibilities. She wouldn't put anything past Danny Paquette. Eventually, Denise learned that Danny had been sexually abusing Melanie for years. She knew she had to get herself and her daughters as far away from her ex-husband as possible. One summer night in 1982, Denise suddenly told her three daughters that they were going on a trip back to Alaska. They hastily packed their things for fear that Danny would show up and catch them trying to leave. Under the cover of night, the family embarked on a six-day drive north, a long journey to freedom. But 12-year-old Melanie had a hard time adjusting to life in Alaska. Although she was happy to be away from her adoptive father, she hated the bleak weather and felt lonely in the small, isolated town they'd moved to. In 1985, after nearly three years of begging, 15-year-old Melanie convinced her mother to let her move back to New Hampshire with her Aunt Kathleen and Uncle Philip. Although Denise was sad to see her daughter go, she agreed that Melanie would be better off living with her aunt and uncle who were more financially stable than she was. Before her daughter left, however, Denise informed Kathleen of the sexual abuse Melanie had suffered. She made it clear that Danny Paquette could not under any circumstances find out that Melanie was attending high school just 15 miles away from his home. For the most part, Melanie tried to ignore the fact that her adoptive father lived in the next town over from her aunt's home. Still, it made her nervous. Even in Alaska, she had worried that Danny might somehow contact her or her mother. It was even worse back in New Hampshire, where she feared Danny would find her and begin abusing her all over again. But Melanie tried to push down her fears and enjoy her time in high school. Soon enough, she found a place she fit in. Growing up, she had plenty of free time to practice soccer in her backyard. Despite having never been on a formal team, she knew she was skilled. But Hopkinton High didn't have a girls' soccer team, so she decided to try out for the boys' team. Her tryout was so impressive that she became the first girl to ever play on the high school soccer team. She made friends with her teammates and grew particularly close to her team captain, a handsome 17-year-old named Eric Windhurst. Eric gave Melanie rides home from practice and spoke to her often on the phone. Over time, Melanie grew increasingly comfortable around Eric. He became the closest thing to a best friend she'd ever had. She trusted him and even developed a bit of a crush on him. But while life at school was good, Melanie was unhappy with her situation at home. She wrote letters to her mother in Alaska, complaining that her aunt and uncle were overbearing and embarrassing. In one letter, Melanie told her mother, I'm ready for my own apartment. As ready as she was to become an adult, Melanie was still a child. In fact, she was still legally Danny Paquette's child, this presented a unique challenge, especially considering she was living in Hopkinton secretly. Kathleen and Philip wanted to become Melanie's legal guardian so they could provide health insurance for her. The only problem was Danny. 
Since he was legally Melanie's father, the family worried he would have legal standing in the guardianship transfer. Kathleen had attended law school and thought she might be able to find a loophole. She filed a motion with the probate court to keep the proceedings sealed, thus keeping Melanie's whereabouts a secret. Kathleen argued that due to the fact that Danny had spent years sexually abusing Melanie, his input in the proceedings would lead to the girl's interests being severely and irreparably harmed. The family thought this would be enough to keep Danny out of the picture. But on November 5, 1985, the judge ruled Danny still had legal standing in the guardianship proceedings. As a result, Kathleen and Philip withdrew their request. The convenience of guardianship wasn't worth Danny Paquette being notified that Melanie was in New Hampshire. No matter how hard she and her family tried, it seemed Melanie would never be entirely free of her adoptive father. The stress kept Kathleen up at night. Her relationship with Melanie was tense, but Kathleen was desperate to forge a more positive connection. With goodwill in mind, she brought Melanie to counseling. During one session, Melanie's father came up unexpectedly. Melanie felt blindsided. She thought the appointment was about her relationship with her aunt, not about her childhood abuse. She didn't want to talk about the things Danny did to her. She wanted to forget them. But even without her saying anything, Melanie's counselor could tell she had been abused. When the counselor asked if Danny had molested her, Melanie nodded her head. She said, he's a monster. To Melanie's horror, she learned that New Hampshire law required the counselor to report cases of sexual abuse to the New Hampshire State Department of Children and Youth Services. Since Melanie had confirmed that Danny had molested her, the Hooksett police had to be notified of the crime. They might even begin an investigation into Danny Paquette. It felt like time was running out, Soon enough, Danny would know that she was back in New Hampshire. Melanie stared at the corded phone, trying desperately to steady her breathing. Her heart was pounding. She couldn't think straight. It felt like her brain was full of static. She needed to talk to someone, somebody who wouldn't betray her like her aunt had, and her counselor, and her mother, and her adoptive father. Over and over, the adults in her life had failed her. They'd left her vulnerable and afraid. She felt like there was nobody to call, nobody she could count on. She thought about her friends at school. There was a group of girls she sometimes ate lunch with, but she didn't know any of their phone numbers. There were her friends on the soccer team, but she worried they would gossip about her. She was the only girl on her team. She didn't want to look weak. She picked up the phone and dialed one of the few numbers that she had memorized. She chewed on her bottom lip as the phone rang and rang. No answer. She dialed the number again. Melanie suddenly felt her stress melt away when Eric Winhurst answered the phone. She told him everything. She told him about the years of abuse she'd endured at her father's hand and confessed she was terrified of what he might do to her next. It was only a matter of time before the police notified Danny that Melanie was living just 15 miles away. 
Then he might get back at her for ratting him out. Melanie could still feel him pressing the cold barrel of a gun against her temple. She could still hear her father warning her to keep quiet about what he did to her. When we return, 17-year-old Eric Windhurst takes drastic action to keep Melanie safe. Now, back to the story. In 1985, Melanie Paquette learned that her abusive adoptive father, Danny, would soon find out that she was living just 15 miles away from him. Feeling that she had nowhere to turn, 15-year-old Melanie confessed her fears to her best friend, 17-year-old Eric Windhurst. After learning Melanie was in danger, Eric began hatching a plan to keep her safe from her stepfather. The teenager believed it was high time somebody held Danny accountable for what he'd done. Two days after Melanie called Eric in a panic, she walked past the Hopkinton High School gymnasium during her free period. When she peeked in one of the windows to watch the basketball team practicing, she saw Eric Windhurst, her tall, broad-shouldered soccer captain, sitting on the bleachers next to his friend, Matt Quinn. Eric beckoned Melanie over to talk. He told Melanie up front that he'd been discussing her situation with Matt. Melanie felt a mixture of adrenaline and dread fill her body. She trusted Eric, but she didn't want to talk about things like this in front of the entire school. Both of the boys would later recall that they had never seen such palpable fright in a person's eyes before. Eric looked at Melanie, his jaw set, and asked, do you want your dad dead? Melanie nodded. Of course she wanted Danny dead. He was the cause of all of her problems. If he would just disappear, she could live in Hopkinton without constantly looking over her shoulder. Eric told Melanie that his father had plenty of guns and ammunition. If she wanted Danny dead, he could make it happen. At Eric's words, Matt's eyes grew wide. He put his hand on his friend's shoulder and said, Easy, Rambo. Nobody is killing anybody. Melanie wasn't sure how to react. She left the conversation and tried to forget about it. But two days later, she received a call from Eric. He told Melanie he'd made a decision. He was going to do it. She knew exactly what he meant and told Eric the idea was absurd. The pair argued back and forth, but Eric was insistent. She knew he wanted to be her knight in shining armor, but life just wasn't that simple. He didn't even know what Danny looked like. She told him that if he really wanted to kill Danny, she'd have to go with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't even know who to shoot. Eric was quiet for a moment. Then he told Melanie he was on the way to get her and hung up. Around 9 a.m. on Saturday, November 9, 1985, Eric picked up Melanie Paquette in his Volkswagen Rabbit. On her way out the door, Melanie told her aunt and uncle that she and Eric were driving out to Plymouth State College, about an hour away, to watch the girls' field hockey championship. She waved goodbye before jumping in Eric's passenger seat. The two high schoolers were quiet on the 20-minute drive to neighboring Hookset, where Danny Paquette lived. 
It was hard for Melanie to focus on anything except Eric's fingers. They gripped the steering wheel so hard that they shone bright white. Once they got to the small town, Eric pulled over to get some gas. The attendant noticed the rifle lying in the back seat of Eric's Volkswagen, but it didn't strike him as unusual. It was the first day of hunting season. Back on the road, Melanie pointed Eric to a wooded area near Danny's house. She had spent enough time on Danny's property as a child to know her way around the woods surrounding it. Eric parked outside of the tree line behind a few tall bushes. He hadn't seen anyone in the woods or on the road and felt sure nobody would see his vehicle. Melanie made no attempt at camouflage either and wore a bright red coat that day. Years later, she would report that the entire ordeal felt like a movie to her. She never believed Eric would actually do it. The reality of the situation never sunk in. The feelings Melanie described are consistent with psychological dissociation. Although every person's experience of dissociation is different, the University of Washington's Department of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy describes it as a sense of the world not being real or a feeling of watching oneself from the outside. Dissociative episodes are a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a common result of sexual abuse. It's possible that as she and Eric ventured into the woods surrounding Danny's house, Melanie was in the middle of a dissociative episode. She may have been completely detached from the gravity of the situation. This detachment could be the reason Melanie didn't tell Eric to stop when he pulled the key out of the ignition. She stepped out of the car along with him and watched as Eric grabbed the rifle from the back seat. Melanie stood by while Eric caked a layer of cautionary mud over his front and back license plates. The pair walked a short while through the woods, twigs and leaves crunching beneath their feet. Soon, they could see a small, white building in the distance, Danny Paquette's house. His garage wasn't far away. Hardly daring to breathe, Eric and Melanie sat down on a patch of grass with a view of Danny's house. Eric pulled a stick of trident gum out of his pocket and crushed it between his teeth. Melanie watched Eric's jaw as he chewed. She felt embarrassed by how seriously he'd taken her fears. She almost wished Eric would have shrugged the whole thing off, but worried there was no going back now. She fixed her eyes on the bottom of her coat and wrapped her arms tightly around her own chest. It was chilly, but the air felt curiously still. There was no wind at all. In the back of her mind, Melanie mused that the lack of wind could make it easier for Eric to shoot Danny. All of a sudden, the reality of the situation hit her. Eric wasn't kidding. He was sitting next to her with a loaded rifle in his hand. Melanie's mind reeled. Did she really want Danny Paquette dead? Yes, she did. But only to feel safe. If she could know for sure that she and Danny wouldn't run into each other by accident, or he wouldn't track her down and show up to a soccer game, then everything would be okay. He didn't need to die. The problem was, 
if Danny found out she was living in New Hampshire. There was no way he would leave her alone. He would find her. He would attack her. He might even kill her if he was angry enough. If Eric wanted to hurt Danny, Melanie decided once and for all that she wasn't going to do anything to stop him. For a few minutes, neither Melanie nor Eric spoke. They both stared out the ground between their own feet. Finally, without even glancing in Melanie's direction, Eric said, When my gum runs out of flavor, I'm going to do it. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the story. We'll explore the fallout from Eric Winhurst's actions and discover why it took investigators nearly two decades to uncover what happened on that November morning in 1985. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.